0: This Future Construct podcast episode is supported by Applied Software. Applied Software is on a mission to transform industry by empowering their clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. So visit asti.com, it's A-S-T-I.com, and please let them know that we're here at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Future Construct podcast. I am your host, Amy Peck. We have a fantastic guest today, Kimon Onuma, who is the founder and president of Onuma, Inc. Welcome, Kimon.
1: Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us a little bit about, I I want to hear about the company first, but then I'd love to hear about your journey to why this industry and how you landed here.
1: Sure. So the company is Onuma, Inc. Um, We're architects, but we're architects of the physical and digital world. We're actually software developers as well. And we didn't intend to become software developers. And that's part of the journey of this. It's interesting because I've always felt there's a connection between the two. Um, So that's kind of the short of it, and um, so we have a new name, and then I've also started a few other things. Like uh, it's called BIMStorm, which is an online charrette, a workshop, um, more than a decade ago, and then we also have other software We have a lot of different software that we develop as well, too.
0: Yeah, I I, I saw the BIM Storm. That seems amazing. I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. But so so you know, in your journey, did you? Sounds like you chose architecture first. Mm -hmm. And then in sort of looking at the landscape, recognized that actually (laughs) we need square to go along with this. So how so what was your your kind of connection with architecture? What made you decide? Did you always know that that's what you wanted to do?
1: Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) My father was an architect as well. And of course, my father and mother said, I must become a doctor. So I decided to go the other way. <laughs> but I've always been interested in, in math and science and art. And that is a perfect combination. So I've always been interested about the information and things, and even before the computers came around. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Greece. So I grew up in Japan and Italy, so all over the place. A lot of exposure to different environments, uh, cities and that's always interested me. Uh, So that got me there as an architect. But um, as I was working as an architect, I realized that there's certain inefficiencies in the industry that we can fix. And we started building solutions for ourselves internally. Um, And one interesting story that triggered that was I was sitting, this was actually, when was this, in the late 80s, I was sitting across the table from a client the US Army Corps of Engineers, actually, in Japan. Uh, negotiating a contract and they were starting to talk about how can we reduce the contract amount? can you reduce the size of the paper that you print the sheets can go from larger oh wow i said sure yeah we can do that and i can get all the down kind of to postage size if you really want to reduce things so it's that concept of having value in the documents that are delivered but really the value is not really what you print it on it's what you put into it so that's one one story that got me thinking about well, what's this really all about how do we work our way through this and that kind of left one thing led to another, and it's always about innovating, and we do a lot of R&D on our own. I'm very interested in just testing things out and learning from other industries, too, very important thing. but But architects are naturally wired to do that, and we kind of absorb what's going on in the environment, and we respond to it. and create solutions. We build designs. We build things. So it's kind of a, that mixture of everything together, that soup, uh, is what's interesting to me.
0: And so how, so at what point did you, you know, really recognize, it sounds like you, you've always had this, you know, propensity to sort of take a problem and find an interesting solution. At what point was it really evident that, that software was really going to go hand in hand, not only with design, but then, you know, with, with the practical elements, the data that, that goes along with it.
1: Right. Um, So my father's office in tokyo um they had WAN computers in the 70s i didn't remember those but um then we, i started working on projects in the late 80s there and it was a lot of kind of repetitive boring work some of the, the buildings are relatively kind of dry and there's a lot of kind of information i need to be churning and you got the site and do checklists and find count buildings and count spaces and whatever and i said can we get some, some kind of a, a data format This was in the late 80s. So we started building a database, essentially, to capture things. And then we said, well, what if you tie this data to 3D? This is, again, late 80s. We had a 3D model. We have information. So we were looking for ways to connect the dots. And then building information modeling came around. And we jumped into it in the early 90s. Um, And we immediately saw the potential there, that, wow, this is amazing. Uh, This is going to change the world in the next couple of years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Famous last words.
1: <laughs> the journey along the way of uh, being, the technology has always been of interest to me, but it's also, I try and be realistic about things. So you have to constantly kind of balance, okay, wow, this is really cool, but can it really work and can it really deliver? That so testing has been very interesting to me. So we were building, um, we are working on traditional planning and architectural projects. Vim at the time. It wasn't even called then back then, but it's essentially the same to of architecture we started with. Um, and with our client, didn't understand it yet. They asked me for deliverables, like I said, in paper, or we want a printed perspective of this view. We said, sure, we can do that. And we had to hold back from delivering too fast because we were producing so much stuff that it was kind of unusual. So we ended up experimenting a lot. And as we were experimenting, we realized back then that even the tools that were available, they didn't fulfill everything that we needed we had to kind of build our own little pieces and things. And we weren't really programmers. We were kind of hacking away at things, Now we was interested in them. So that's kind of gotten the mixture of the technology, the BIM part and the traditional design part. And in that journey, too, as you're building software, the architecture of the software, you're trying to break logic apart and rules apart and rebuild them, right? which is why it's called architecture. It's very similar in many ways to the thinking of an architect. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's a lot of parallels here and we can kind of just bounce back and forth between the two and experiment. So that's kind of how that mixture of wanting to build applications for our own internal use first. And I hadn't gotten to the part of what do we do next with this, but it was really for our own internal use. And it was to communicate as efficiently as possible across the world from Tokyo to California. This is again, early 90s. And we were... On the web in '93, so we got early into this whole web and internet thing. But we're doing dial-up, trying to send files back and forth. <laughs> you need to be as compact and as efficient in the file size, which means you have to be compact and efficient in the code that you write to do that as well too. So that that kind of went hand in hand. But it's it's actually good practice anyway to do that rather than have a small, more big, big, huge thing. So
0: anyway, that's kind of a long answer. <laughs> no, no, but you know, but and it's always about compression. So we are all still living in an episode of Silicon Valley whether we like it or not. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and I love, I love that you said, "Oh, this is this is great. This is going to be really big in a couple of years, you know, give or take 25." And you know, I I find it remarkable that it still isn't you know, like it still isn't part of the process for every single company. And there, there are companies out there that are just somehow still think maybe BIM isn't a thing. I'm not sure <laughs> what the rationale is. But I think also, I think one of the challenges is that there's so much technology now mm-hmm. and you are playing with technology right on the cusp, right? Where just, just as all of this was becoming available. But now there's this, Incredibly broad swath of technology, it's it's not as advanced as as we'd like it to be. Do, do you think that in a way that that is even stagnating some of the growth on the practical use cases because there's just too much for companies to experiment with?
1: Right there, there is a lot, and it's going to get more. It's not going to get less, actually. Right. So if you rewind back 20 years, 25 years ago, we used to buy a box of piece of software, CAD, whatever, and opened up we, our world surrounded around that. And now we have literally thousands of apps, right? And the expectation now is from the end users that are walking on mobile phones. I don't want to use this app. or oh, I like it. I'm going to throw it away. I don't like it. I'm going to try this other one. So the technology for us, and this has been true from the very beginning, the technology should be disposable. I should be able to unplug something I don't like, plug something else in, build my own, buy somebody else's, or consult with somebody and plug it in. So the technology, the amount of applications is going to grow. Um, funny side story here, since I mentioned Box, too. I had a client in the 90s that really liked the work that we did, really liked the software that we had. Um, and we were talking about cloud back then. You put it in the web the cloud and whatever. I said, no, no, you have to put it in a box. If you can put this in a box, a little box, we'll buy the application. I, said, I don't have a box, but I'll think about it. And we're friends right now, so you probably going to be watching this. But it's just a funny story that the expectation is that we need to buy something off the shelf and use it. But now we're all becoming, in a sense, software developers because software has become a lot easier to use and build on the web, especially, than kind of plug different things together and build solutions. Um, the hardest thing, and I've learned this through the years too, the hardest thing is the coding is difficult. It's difficult to code, and there's no, no question about that. But the more difficult thing is the logic and understanding the rules of the environment of facilities, of buildings, of engineering. All that stuff is incredibly complex with their relationships. And that's exactly what architects and engineers and builders are great at. So even if you give give a, a problem to a coder, they're not going to solve that. You have to have that kind of combined know-how of different stakeholders coming together. And that's really fascinating to me, too, because there's value to be gained there from everybody, if, if you're willing to understand that. And as you said, it's really... Pre- in the early 90s I thought it was going to take off in a couple of years and it's kind of funny because every two years this is going to happen it's going to happen what really has frustrated me from the very beginning as an architect I tried to go to architects first. a second look at this this is great and, oh no we can't do this we can't do this architects are incredibly creative but we're also incredibly kind of conservative but we're changing and that's good but we need to think outside the box, which we do for designs, but we're kind of hesitant on the software or the technology thing. Well, we'll wait till somebody builds that and maybe we'll buy it and compare the price and whatever. So I think that's another opportunity that if we think like that, it opens up completely new value chains that you can build, new relationships that you can create. And so over the years, we've kind of migrated from kind of trying to convince the architectural community, even though I still do, I've been very involved and I really respect arch- and I'm an architect, so I really think there's a lot of potential there, but we shifted to owners. The reason we shifted to owners is we know that the owners can drive the discussion because they're paying for things. Yes. So that's uh, a lot of our work in the last decade has really heavily shifted to representing owners and working with the architects in between in the mix in that all mixture too. I haven't even talked about our software, but it's 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 in there as well too.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. So I I, I want to talk about something for sure that that you mentioned, but we do need to have a little moment here to hear from our sponsors, and then we're gonna be right back. And then I have another question for you. Great. This episode of the Future Construct Podcast is supported by the amazing team at Applied Software. They have solutions for any modern project. Applied Software is on a mission to transform industry by empowering their clients and being the champions of innovation with their real-world expert consultants. They have a comprehensive suite of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing, and they have a singular focus to help you achieve higher performance. They have software, training, support, consulting, and custom development. Applied software has you absolutely covered for all of your workflow needs. And BIM Designs is proud to be a client and partner of Applied Software. So visit asti.com, that is is A-S-T-I.com, and please let them know that Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. And we are back and as promised you said something that was that was really interesting and i think a really important component of how we look at you know the role of software and even uh, automation in the future was that you know the complexity of what an architect knows and understands isn't going to be replicated in a piece of software that the software really is in fact a tool and I think, you know, as we're looking at automation and all of the fears kind of rippling through the workforce saying, look, we're going to be, re- you know, we're going to be replaced by robots, right? We're going to be replaced by AI. Um, but I think we have an opportunity if we're careful and we're smart to sort of augment human potential and leave what what really we're best at, which is the the creativity and the nuance of our individual in- industries. And build machines that free us up to, to do that. So I'm wondering if you hear that from your clients and, and just what your thoughts are in in terms of that kind of blend of automation and you know human creativity.
1: Right, absolutely. And that's what we've been focused on. So the create creativity part is the part that's part of the replicate, right? But a lot of the work that we do. There's a lot of non-creative stuff, repetitive stuff. Well, first of all, there's a whole bunch of stuff you just kind of wipe off the table and say 30% of this. Just let the computers count things and calculate things and even give us warnings about you know this whatever's happening in the design. There's a lot of really simple rules that can be automated too, which starts to get a little bit threatening and scary to designers maybe. And I've had this over and over over the years. I've even used the word the term automating architecture just to put a shock treatment in. But the intent is really not to automate it. It's really to automate as much of it so you can spend more time in the creative part. That's the fun part. That's another driver for us developing software. We're always looking for ways to automate things in design, which means you're cutting down hours. Now, that's a problem in, this, in the AUAC world because we're tied to hours and hourly rate, which is also a problem too because doctors don't do that. You know, it's It's more about the value. So we're not tied enough to the value that we do and we have to be fearless about automating the stuff that has no value because if we don't do it there are others waiting they're already doing it actually <laughs> the googles and whatever they're looking all over the environment cataloging and digitizing and scanning and putting an ai in it. so it's already happened. so we might as well be up there in the forefront and be the leaders in that pack because there's a lot of creativity that you can't automate and never will i think but it'll it'll start getting chipped away but if we're not at the table, we're gonna basically be watching on the sidelines and that whole industry will move somewhere else. So that's the part that I think that's the yin and the yang thing going on here. But I see it as an opportunity. It's really an opportunity. And um, if you frame it like that, unfortunately, there have been a lot of people that we've dealt with over the years that are very fearful of that. And it comes out sometimes in a direct way, sometimes indirect. And I could see that hurting those that think like that, and I'm, I'm not trying to be kind of, uh, negative about this, but I, I think it's more to shift our, our opportunity. And that's what BIMStorm is. So it's a good transition to BIMStorm. So over the years, because contracts for design construction operations, even are kind of fixed in their way and their deliverables and their schedules and the people that you need, all that stuff. We said, okay, what if we step away from the contract and we build this scenario, that's very close to the real world, but it has no contract. And we, invite others, even our competitors. We've invited our competitors in, because I don't see anybody really as a competitor. It's more of a collaborator. If we're talking about the same thing, we're competing. the software, that's great. We can plug the two together and make something completely new. So in DemStorm, we invite architects, owners, engineers, software developers to, to solve a problem. And this happened over 12 years ago now. We said, okay, let's look at Los Angeles, the whole city, and kind of do a planning scenario on this part of the city and get owners in to put their program in here. Let's do this for uh, 48 hours, no, it was 24 hours the first one, and see what we can come up with. And let's make it on the web so it can go around the world and everybody can just plug in and do their thing. We had hundreds of people, several hundred actually, plugging in with their solutions back then. Uh, it wasn't quite as advanced as today, but still. Um, and that creativity of being able to test things outside the contractual environment allows us to learn Allows us to experiment. Allows us to create connections with others that are like-minded. That we actually do real projects with. Allows us to market ourselves in many ways—not ourselves, but everybody else that was part of that—to market ourselves. Look, look at—it's just a, it's a hackathon, basically. Here we're hacking at the, at the problem, and that's created a tremendous opportunities for us. Even to this day, we're doing—we're working on brainstorms for. Pri- privately, they're not. Most of the storms are in public, but there are private storms that are happening right now for owners that said, "Hey, we want to do this to get our internal stakeholders to understand this, so we can work with our aides more efficiently."
0: That's brilliant, and I think you know, so much of this is is kind of a a, a parallel to you know the the proponents of of open source software, and and I'm like I'm a big believer, particularly in open source AI. Um, and that we have to trust that there still is going to be a healthy competition, right? There's going to be a nuance in how you know competing companies leverage a, a particular solution. But the the more that we open source, the more we can uncover some of the challenges, particularly with AI, because there's so many pitfalls of AI, mm-hmm. um, especially opaque AI, and and the more we open source, the more we can all learn from the same construct. But there's there's still this kind of you know corporate veil of secrecy and you know they're concerned about their shareholders, which is which is fair, but how do we change that mindset to say, look, it's all gonna be okay? <laughs> uh, yeah. That,
1: that, that's been uh, they're interesting to me too. So the open source and the AI portion, but so the open source, for example, um, and the formula is already out there in a lot of Silicon Valley. In fact, Amazon, Jeff, he's a great quote about this from, I don't know, it was five, 12 years ago or whatever. So if you if you wanna have AI making decisions about what you're doing, you have to at least have the data, open data below it to be able to even draw from it. If you don't have kind of that, that source material, Then you can't make decisions from it. So yeah, AI can do things with random data as well too. But you need the more kind of some kind of structure you have and make it accessible, and make it accessible in a way that you can compete and also decide what to expose or not expose. But if you build the architecture from the beginning to protect and proprietary and and make it uh, bespoke or whatever um, for yourself, then the connectivity portion is gone. You're basically saying, I'm going to solve this all ourselves because this is secret stuff and we have a certain way we lay out building. Well, yeah, okay. But uh, the more that you can figure out how to get the data in a format that you can use yourself through an API in in an open way and then decide what to expose to the outside world and then say, well, yeah, you have some data over here. What if you connect these two data sets and you have a whole new use case, which happens all the time because there's so much useful data in the design and construction process. It's just tons of data. Not only the data about the final BIM, the final geometry, and the final what's in the building, it's all the decisions that go into it. What kind of steel do we have in the building? How do you maintain this building so the steel doesn't fail in the concrete? Those are unfortunate things that happen because information was not easily accessible. But we should be able to capture those decisions that are made and then decide how to share and use them. And if we're going to be um, delivering buildings and facilities to our clients. I think it's our responsibility to deliver the knowledge and the decisions that went into how we built that and why we built that and what to expect from that and what the life expectancy is and how to maintain it and how much value there is and how much gain all that stuff. That's value that's not that doesn't come back to the design and construction team because we focus so much on the physical result. Well, here's a building, let's walk away from it, let's shred everything because it's secret stuff.
0: Yeah, and the, and, and the 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 trend just in general is is this whole notion of of transparency, um, corporate responsibility and and it and you know as as blockchain evolves, if we can get people to stop, you know, like uh, thinking about it in just terms of this crypto gold rush with NFTs and you know, all of these things that are just gonna be bubbles and really detract from what the core benefit of the technology is, which is effectively being a digital t- source of truth. You know, we can really elevate process. And and I would even argue that companies who have a culture of secrecy are going to be blockbuster in this next generation of, you know, corporations that are are kind of growing out of the technology today. Um, Because, you know, even the workforce is is demanding that companies be more transparent. It's only a matter of time before they, they demand that they're more transparent about data
1: exactly yeah and the transparency again it's very important to think in terms that there's transparency there's security there's both they go hand in hand but if you're kind of in a gray zone the middle um then nothing works because okay we're protecting this but oh we can't share this through the internet oh we're going to send you a cd by fedex that gets lost in the mail but it's secure data this is a real story actually but i'm not going to name the client but (laughs) (laughs) the the data got sent by a cd that was secure we got lost. They went to the wrong address. The person opened it, contacted us. It was not encrypted, all that stuff. We say, okay, if, you, if you're if you smart about it, you can actually, and it was all bundled into one package. So the decoupling of the data into different buckets and then having that open access to it, the architecture that's open, and then deciding who gets access to it when and how, and is there a price? Is it free? Do we collaborate? Do we not? All that stuff can happen on the fly at a very micro level, and then we can focus on the, the design part, the part that we said the, the creativity part that we talked about. Earlier.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting too because you know Unity, you know, as a as a game engine, has that functionality where you know there's there's kind of a, a veneer, sort of a uh, an operating system, you know, in sort of that lives in the front, right? That just allows you to. You know, you don't necessarily have to look under the hood, you can get a lot done, you can still have that construct with kind of, uh, you know, kind of corporate software and secrets and, and data. Uh, and then for those who have the capacity and or the appetite, you know, they can kind of look under the hood, they can change the source code, they, you know, they, they, they have these levels of accessibility and, you know, an ability to, for you to be able to access different levels based on what you need to do. And I think, you know, I think corporates can really take a, a big lesson from that. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, of course, I spend all day, every day thinking about um, more, you know, AR, VR, which I think, you know, in our in our 3D realm, you know, the irony has been that, you know, in, in your industry in particular, your 3D industry, you had to kind of cram the ability to create Onto a two D screen, and now we have the opportunity to actually work in you know three D in a three D environment. Uh, but just like you mentioned, you know, with BIM, like oh, in a couple of years, this is really going to take off. <laughs> I think we're, we're really at just the very, very early stages of this. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think immersive technology, what what role it plays in in this in this future.
1: I think, it, like William Gibson said, it's unevenly spread the future, right? So we have this really advanced stuff and then have a lot of, a lot of noise that gets created by that because there's a lot of hype, the whole hype cycle, which is, is fine too because people get exposed to it and they take off too far into it. Um, and obviously in buildings and VIM and the 3D environment, it's three-dimensional, so the 3D world fits right into that. So they, uh, the VR part's really interesting, you walk around the building, whatever. The AR part's really fascinating too because you're layering. The reality with other data on top of it, which goes back to you need have access to that other data. Do you have a <laughs> is it accessible even isn't to be able to do any kind of analysis with, forget AI for a moment, just getting access to the data first. Once once you can see it in an AR environment, then all of a sudden you can see behind walls and see that rebar that we we're talking about earlier. So that's really, I think it's gonna be amazing. Obviously, the hardware and technology is evolving, but I think it's actually accelerating in many ways in the last few years it's kind of an interesting shift that's happening and i've said this before so i might be completely wrong
0: <laughs> no no you're right you're right and i think i think you know the the last year and a half kind of accelerated this exploration into especially around collaboration right and and how we can collaborate remotely but you know to me bim data being visualized in you know with a mixed reality device that you know that can kind of live through the entire you know, development cycle, and then and then you true it up with an as-built, and then you give technicians or, you know, if there's construction that needs to be done or maintenance or any retrofitting or even a, you know, a remodel, you're effectively then able to see through walls, right? And again, you can turn on different permissions based on what, what whoever is in the device, what they need to see, but that seems like a fairly obvious use case, but it may just be obvious to you and I and not to <laughs> Else.
1: <laughs> and what's interesting about that is uh, the digital twin. So that concept of having everything in the building. When we first started with them in the 90s, that's the first thing we did. We started loading the model, which was what how you did it back then, right? you might load the whole model with everything, and you can go inside the model and find it. But that means that you need to know how to run the model, that technician. So it's a very it was a very kind of limited view of that data. I think we're still kind of there, though, because... Um, imagine a BIM of a completed building with all the mechanical, like, all, everything in it. Yeah. And to the owner, if the owner can't run it, it's a limited value. Uh, the facility people have a different use case than that. It's the same data, but it's a subset. It's again, getting down to the core data and being able to say, well, I don't need, in some cases you might not even need, need the 3D at all. you say, I just want a piece of data of the assets but I want the assets in a location. I XYZ. xyz X, Y, Z. I don't need all the other 3D around it because I see the 3D. Oh, another use case, I might need to be able to drill all the way into the model to look at the actual damage to compare. But there's so many use cases that have to be defined by us, but we tend to, I hear a lot of noise in the industry with uh, our, our view, each, each user's view of what they think that model can be used for in the life cycle. Yes, it's gonna get there, but there's a lot of stuff in between that can happen that's much easier to do and then we'll get to the more advanced things um and we've been consulting with a lot of owners like this and i've run into a lot of as i've gone through their second cycle where they tried a lot of this let's load the whole model and now let's maintain it. and if well, we can't maintain models now we have to go back um so that balance is important and that balance i think is going to come from us that understand the industry and also to be able to collaborate with others outside of our typical view of that model, that data, to come up with that use case, which goes back to we need to have the data that's accessible to everybody, no matter what platform and application you use. And to be able to think in terms of, well, I don't see an app out there that does what I need to do and I could build an app you know, from the pieces that we have and it's getting much, much easier to build apps than it was years ago. So building apps and getting to the data and creating these solutions, that's why I think there's a lot of. That's why I, when I mentioned sure there's going to be more apps, and the apps are going to be just. We really need to think about applications as being disposable, or even plan for it in case they do go away. What happens if they do go away?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's and that's you know been been you know um, a question that you know we may just not be app based in the future. And I think you know I think when you talk about owners. You know, certainly certainly people listen to the owners, of course, as you mentioned, because they're the ones paying for things but i think you know when when we'll start to see some real traction is when you know ensuring that uh, you know contractors and even subs are you know making the data available truing up the data if it triggers payments because you can go, you know you can have these smart contracts again live on blockchain use ai you're you're able to take point cloud data Compare it against, um, you know, BIM data and the models, and and you know, get to those tranches where people would get paid. People will definitely pay attention if it triggers payments and it comes from the owners.
1: Definitely, and that's where I think blockchain and those that, that can really apply here. And we've been kind of testing around some ideas with that too. But because the current con the governance and the contracts, and we're helping them rewrite contracts for us too. But the contractual way that we we have been. We come from the past of how contracts were written okay if you look at that contract and break it down and if you could find out the provenance of who actually made this decision and who put this thing into the building and who's responsible for it until when all of that is incredibly valuable and if we can think in terms of using those technologies to build that functionality that value up because i think that's going to be where we have to head we, we can't identify value unless we can tag it somehow And we have to have owners that understand that too, that are willing to change the way that they contract. And we also have to kind of disrupt the traditional contracting method, because there's a lot of really cozy comfortable ways that things are done right now and paid for, which don't make any sense at all, (laughs) which is going to be, there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. So it's, it's really a cultural shift, a contracting shift and the technology is. It's, it's, it's just about there, I think, to do a lot of this, but the bigger shift right now is all, all of this other stuff.
0: <laughs> the behaviors. Well, I think we're just a couple of years away, for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Of course.
0: laughs> it's any day now, this is all going to happen. Last
1: years <laughs> have shifted everything so fast.
0: It's true. I mean, it really is true. And I th- you know, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, it, even having a specialty, you know, which each of us do, you still then have to kind of now have these subspecialties in all of the technologies. Like, I need to understand AI, I need to understand blockchain, I need to understand automation and, and robotics, and then even the verticals and where they're being applied. Just like you said in the beginning, you know, you have to keep an eye on other industries and not be myopic because it's really important to just see how. Technology is evolving, you know, uh, across industry and just business and in, in general. Because so I think that can really, you know, help inform how we how we change things and and um, again try and get the life cycle down to <laughs> to, to less than twenty five years. That's right. <laughs> so this leads leads me to my to my final question, which I ask everyone, which is if you could, and I'm sure you think about this a lot, if you could project yourself, you know, fifteen. 20 20, 25 years into the future, and you could bring with you, you know, any object or service, just something that makes your life better, makes you personally happy. What would it be and what would it do?
1: I think it kind of goes back to that device that allows you to connect and collaborate and see into things and be able to connect the dots and see behind. Now I'm getting into architecture again, it doesn't have to be just about architecture, about anything really, uh, um, daily life. But if you really think about it as humans, we're really interacting with our environment. And our environment is really, you know, the whole them and GIS and all of that around us, that information is there, but we need that device and that ability to do that. And the funny, I, I thought about this before this call, and I thought that would be the ideal scenario. Then I thought about it, wait a second, a lot of the stuff's already here today. We already have a lot of these technologies to do it, but it goes back to what I said earlier. We don't have the underlying infrastructure, the, the, the open data and access and APIs and the platforms and the, uh, the, the uh, fearlessness to be willing to share and also to be able to uh, declare when something has value and, and be able to, to make a living off of that. Um, so I think that's what's missing, but that, that device, so it's kind of a cultural and a device thing, that needs to come together, and I think it's going to happen. in less than twenty five years, hopefully, but not two I, years.
0: I, I hope so too. And I think I've added um, what you just said, uh, a piece of what you just said, to to my list of the future. Is you know the the fearlessness to share. I think that's a great statement, and I and I really hope we get there.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, Kumon, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Enjoyed it.